when Vital Joint closed in 2020 and we helped Life World open, yeah. it was like, and here are the chairs. And also these are Richard Foreman's chairs. Oh my God. So it's like passing the baton. Yeah. How magical like to have an object be like so precious and meaning so many stories, how many hands oh, it has touched. And- so many butts it's touched. <laughs> butts <laughs> it's all it's butts. Touched. So many butts. Rufus Wainwright's butt. Kate Valk's butt. Oh my God. You know, Willem Dafoe's butt. We need to make them like gold. Yeah. <laughs> Why doesn't a museum have them now? We should be using them. Yeah. <laughs> We're not there yet, Indiana Jones. We're not there yet. Welcome to What's Off the podcast where we shine the spotlight on off-Broadway innovation. Each episode features interviews with trailblazing artists, administrators, service providers, and other theater workers in the off and off-off-Broadway community. I'm your host, Ashley J. Hicks, a.k.a. Ash. And I'm your other host, Nikki Maggio. The clip at the beginning of this episode was from our next guest, Teresa Buchheister. Teresa realized something was off when they encountered a number of barriers to participation in theater, even when living in a city with so much at their fingertips. Teresa is a director, writer, producer, performer, and curator from Manhattan, Kansas. They currently operate as artistic director of The Brick, an experimental performance space in Brooklyn, The Exponential Festival, a January performance festival of deep fringe art, and Title Point, a 16-year-old company specializing in oddity slapstick and dread. Teresa also curates Interabang New Works, a works-in-progress gathering for all performance mediums. They used to run Vital Joint for four years, which was home to a variable slew of alt-comedy, weird dance, strange film, and more. They were part of the DIY Bushwick performance venue, Silent Barn, for four years, and the Ontological in St. Mark's Church for 10 years. Teresa makes a living doing voiceover work, directing and voicing cartoons, audiobooks, and podcasts. Interviewing Teresa today is my co-host, Nikki Maggio. I'm so excited, Ash, for you to hear this interview. So let's get to it. And listeners, make sure to stick around for a post-interview discussion with Ashley and myself. Enjoy. Hi, Teresa. It's so lovely to have you here. So lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. And now to jump right in. All right. Okay, Teresa. First question. Where did the love of experimentation start and where did your values originate? Woo. All right. Uh, (laughs) Big question. (laughs) Yes. Well, the older I get, the more sort of ties to things that I can identify as sources of values or beginnings of thought. But one of the earliest is the Manhattan, Kansas experimental theater group that was started in 1989 by uh, Jim Hamilton. And even though I had a complicated relationship with the church, which resulted in me not being able to participate as much as I wanted to, Mm. it was that first exposure to experimental work and sort of community values, welcoming, working hard, but also having a good time. And yeah, it was wild. In 1989, Jim started this program for high school students where he used his position as the head of the philosophy department at Kansas State University to get a bunch of texts that we would have never had exposure to. So we were reading and studying Richard Foreman and uh, Gertrude Stein and Lee Brewer and Joan Shankar and all of these people, 
like Beckett was too normal. You know what I mean? <laughs> Such in a normal high Beckett. school, right? It was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we get it. In high school. Yeah. It's it's brilliant. And it wasn't just with people who wanted to do theaters, it was people who were interested mm. in learning and creating and working together. And we were shown a lot of trust as teenagers as well within parameters, you know. It wasn't like we were not being in a place where we could just do whatever we wanted. It wasn't Lord of the Flies or something. But we were trusted to read and research, pick a focus story, and then rewrite that story in a group collaboratively. So we also learned about editing and trusting each other and knowing that the goal is to make the whole piece stronger, more interesting, less redundant, not confusing for the sake of being confusing, There's a lot of great conversation that goes on when you're sort of learning to collaborate at such a young age. And then we'd perform and direct ourselves, too. Wow. Which was just wild. So that was really influential. And then in college, I went to the University of Kansas because I'm not in debt um, (laughs) now. And I could afford it. So it was great. But Mm. for a very weird, wonderful two years, Patricia Barra, who's been at Brown since then, was there, who was coming into Kansas with this wild wealth of knowledge, having been in New York and, you know, working with people like Richard Foreman and Tony Torn and researching Reza Abdo and Mexican experimental theater. So she was, yeah, no one else in Kansas had that perspective. And this was like pre, well, internet existed, but not in my home. You couldn't just go and like look something up immediately. Yeah. So it was like she was a wealth of information and really responsible with it as well. So those are probably the two earliest, biggest things while I was still in Kansas. And then those things, I would say, sort of paved the way to me figuring out how to get to New York. And how did you get to New York? Well, I wrote letters to a bunch of um, different places, including the public theater. Uh, and I was like, I should be in Shakespeare in the Park because I have been in many Shakespeare plays. I don't know if you've heard of me. I've done them all in Kansas. I love that so uh, much. <laughs> I wish I had that letter and I wish I had their response because it was very generous, but they were also probably making fun of me, which is fair. Oh. But they were like, yeah, you can totally come audition. And I was like, I've been invited by the public theater to audition for Shakespeare in the Park. Sorry, friends, I'm out of here. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I also wrote letters to like the Folger and, mm. and to Richard Foreman. And Richard called my landline at home and I think left a message, honestly, because I was never home. And You're always in the theater department doing work. Yeah, and <laughs> or he, he didn't know to call the green room <laughs> payphone like everyone else. I should have just put that as my number. Yes. Or you're answering like <laughs> yeah. message, be like, please Service. call the green room. <laughs> right? My roommates would have been so mad at me. We would have a battle of like changing the answering machine constantly <laughs> to represent our own needs yes. more than each other's yes. shared needs. And he was like, yeah, just be here September 1st, 2004, and it's 40 hours a week unpaid. And I was like, great, I'm going to figure that out. So I worked around 80 to 85 hours a week that summer before leaving Kansas so I could save a bunch of cash. That was just a box full of cash. Wow. And I could spend $60 a week total on everything. So I stole tampons. I ate as much free stuff as I could. A do-it-yourself type of living. Yeah. And I lived in a living room on 148th and Broadway for two years because I was a clean one of the three of us that lived in a Mm two-bedroom. And I just had to make it work. 
So I figured out how to get myself here and make enough that I could pay my rent and my phone bill and my Metro card, which at the time was $67 a month. Wow. (sighs) For an unlimited. Wow. Yeah. I was limited as to what I could do other than go to rehearsal, but I loved it. So who cares? But then on the way there, an actor was let go for some reason. I'll never know. Mm. And they asked if I would be a dwarf in the show, which in all of Foreman's scripts, those are the characters that don't speak and wear the same outfits, basically. And I was like, 100%, yes. But can I still help build the set and props? So I did that for a month and then went into rehearsals and then got to do the show for five or six months. So that was like my full first year in New York. And what was the show? The Gods Are Pounding My Head, a.k.a. Lumberjack Messiah. What a title. Yeah. Richard Foreman. How like integral to like you and so many experimental artists in the field today? Oh my gosh. If you flip through the collections and you look at who were interns and who were dwarves in the shows, yeah, you're just like, that's everyone. Those are the people that have experimental companies that I follow. And they're all also the best technicians. <laughs> you know? And that was their start. Yeah. And that was the community that you found yourself in and that you were feeding into and experimenting within. (laughs) It just came up the other week, too, because on Friday I went to Life World and saw a show, Hannah Kallenbach. And at that show, Noel from Bushwick Star was there, Noel along, and Joe and Skye from Jack. And we were all hanging out there and none of them had been there before. And I was like, oh, my God, Noel, these are foreman's chairs. And he was like, What? Because when we had to close the ontological in 2014, we passed like the grid. We took the grid down and passed it through the gates to Bushwick Stars so that they could finally have a grid. Oh, my God. Because they didn't have a grid before that. It was wild. People will just remember them being this like fancy, beautiful place to do beautiful shows. But it was like a kitchen in the background with no grid for years. It's a lot of practical lighting. Yeah. <laughs> It'll bring in the lamps. So we're like passing through the pipes. And then me and Kanal Gupta from Baby Castles took all the chairs and split them between Silent Barn and Baby Castles. Wow. In a flatbed truck trying to drive around to all these different locations. And then we took the chairs from Silent Barn to Vital Joint. When Vital Joint closed in 2020, and we helped Life World open. Yeah. It was like, and here are the chairs. And also these are Richard Foreman's chairs. Oh my God. So it's like passing the baton. Yeah. That's how magical, like to have an object be like so precious and meaning so many stories, how many hands oh, it has touched. And so many butts it's touched. <laughs> many <laughs> it's all butts. Touched. So many butts. Rufus Wainwright's butt, Kate Volk's butt. Oh my God. You know, Willem Dafoe's butt. We need to like make them like, gold yeah. <laughs> why doesn't a museum have them now we should be using them yeah <laughs> we're not there yet we're not Indiana there Jones. Yet. yeah <laughs> so now i'm gonna go into around this is a perfect transition into 2008 through like 2011 when we we're talking about the ontological and your work there and so you and me have talked before this interview and what i got was in around that time you found yourself moving across the water to brooklyn You found yourself in new spaces like Silent Barn. And so I would love to hear about that time. What was it like? What were some lessons you learned looking back on the moves that you made? Certainly. You know, it was a wild time because I got here in 2004 and things sort of maybe felt like they were the way that they were going to be for a while. Mm. And at that point, I didn't know that that would never be true. 
that there's an illusion of stability and sustainability and that something really has to become an institution that might then become not the thing that it started out being by becoming an institution or it closes and changes. Mm. And that's very New York. And I appreciate that now. I did not know that then. Mm. So the sadness of experiencing the first many places close or things change felt very destabilizing. And now I just sort of expect it. But at that point, the economic crash caused a lot of issues. And so places that were commissioning work for not that much, but oh my gosh, if somebody offered me $2,000 to do a show for a week in a space now, I'd be like, am I getting punked? Like, what's going on? (laughs) This is so exciting. And on camera somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, like where is it hidden? Yeah. But that's what would happen before 2008. And there were funders that also dried up during that time. So we talk so much now about philanthropy and funding for the arts drying up, but it's already happened before. Yeah. And we already made it through and exciting things came from it, but it's change and change is hard. So around that time, I was still getting to do shows at the ontological until it closed in 2014 because it had become a bit of a home, which was really great. But now I sort of look back and wonder if they could have been more inclusive Though I do feel like it was an incredibly welcoming space, but I felt that way because I was welcomed. Yeah. So I'm sort of side examining that now, but the other spaces that existed, I didn't feel like I had access to partially because I still was a person with a day job, still am. Um, That is not my art. So there's this sort of distinction between people who are serious enough artists to not have a day job. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. well, that's, very lucky for them, but I have to pay my rent and I hope to do it in ways that I enjoy more over the years, but I'm never expecting to not have a job. So there was people whose job was art. And also often those people went to fancier schools than me. And I never thought for myself that going to KU would have been something to stand in my way. But then when I got here, I was told many times that, yes, it would stand in my way and not having an MFA and things like that. So I was like, well, I'm not going to stop making art. The other thing was I learned what an early career artist was, and it was somebody who'd been doing it for 10 years. And I was like, oh, but what about me? (laughs) Um, What do I do for the next 10 years? And I was like, well, I guess I keep figuring out how to make stuff, but it's not going to be with the support of any quote unquote institution. So I was like, I guess I'm going to go to Brooklyn and make stuff in music venues and spaces that I started working with Jeff Stark around that time, Mm. which was hugely influential because he was doing immersive theater before it got destroyed by the show that shall not be named and is not really immersive theater. It's not interesting and pretty abusive, but Mm -hmm. it used to be really cool. And Jeff would do shows The first thing we did was an abandoned power plant in Yonkers, and he really prioritized the safety of his audience and his performers and doing something that seemed impossible in a space that was sort of magnificent with art that is as good as the space, you know? He didn't want to have it be overshadowed by the space. And so through that, his stage manager for that show was Mark Krauchek, who did the Night Market, which was installations on the back of CC rentals trucks. And we started doing that and learning how to make things not only without a light board, but without power. Wow. The night market taught people how to innovate within real constraints, not just like, oh, 
this is an old ETC board. No, like there's Hmm. no power. Where do you get your power? How do you turn lights on? Oh, the entire inside of the truck is metal. And you thought in your head, isn't there like some wood in there though? No, there's no wood. So how do you hang anything? And you find out the location the day that you're doing the event. And then thousands of people come through and it's also free. It's free to everyone. You can't sell anything and you can't accept money for people entering your truck. So you also find a way to create a meaningful art experience without expecting it to be the thing that pays your bills. Mm. We know that The Brick has been around for 21 years and you were hired as the artistic director in January 2020. Put an echo on that. (laughs) Truly. (laughs) What a time to be hired. Oh my, many stories there. So the programs that The Brick offers now, we have the mission of pioneering emerging artists and career experimenters. I love that, career experimenters. And the importance of removing financial barriers for artists creating work. Wow. How much of that is in the DNA of The Brick? And how much of that did you implement during your tenure? Well, I think that Michael Gardner and Robert Honeywell, who started The Brick, were really young when they started it at a time that a bunch of other cis white dudes were opening sort of garage spaces and making room for their art. Had I opened a space at the same age as them, I would have been learning while doing in that space, right? But I was fortunate to come into this position having done all of this other stuff and learned from other people and worked with other people. Being a part of Silent Barn was huge. Running Vital Joint, a partially legal basement space for four years, was also a big way to learn. Managing a housing works thrift store and learning about budgets really for the first time. All of those things were really helpful and they didn't have that coming in. I would hesitate to say hired because yeah. really what had happened was I'm friends with Michael and we'd go do stuff all the time and we'd go to shows and we'd get drinks and he'd be like, I'm not making art anymore. I'm just working my job and trying to run the brick and it's hard. And so as a friend, I was like, how do I encourage Michael to make art? Not how do I take the brick and take that off of his plate? Mm. So I'd be like, write something and I'll do it at salon or just trying to encourage him as a friend. And then in January 2019, we had had some drinks. Yes. And I was like, Michael, what would it look like if you gave me the brick? Is that a thing? Like, do you want, you want out? Like, you keep saying this stuff and now I'm hearing you in a different way. Mm. Then there was a lot of other stuff. The board had to vote. Some of the board left. I brought in new board members. There are a lot of, I found out about a lot of like debt things, but I was Mm. like, you know, whatever. I can do it. I can't do worse was my perspective about Mm. the financial side of things. (laughs) There are solutions. There are always solutions. I was like, I'm crafty and I have so many ideas. So then we spent 2019 sort of putting those pieces in place. And I was like, I have to renovate. I have to make it accessible in order for me to run it because I had just been thinking about how do I go there as me as an audience member, but I can't change anything about this space. It's not my job to do that. But then when it became my job to think about everyone who walks through those doors, I started to think about it differently, but I did not get hired per se. I got drunk and asked for it. It's so audacious. I love it so much. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when I was 22 or 23, I'd gone to see, I think 
the National Theater of the United States of America, like one of their Chautauqua performances, and it was at the public. Um, they had originally done it at PS122, I'm pretty sure, but then they would do it around and they'd do different pieces of it. And it was so good. I was obsessed with it. And I think it was a weird interaction, but for some reason I met Oscar Eustace as a 22 or 23 year old. Wow. And I was like, how do I do shows here? And he just like sort of laughed at me, I think, and was like, well, yeah, let me know your ideas. And it was definitely around that age because I was like, well, I really want to do Judith Molina's translation of Breck's adaptation of Sophocles and Tigany. Yes. And he was like, <laughs> No. (laughs) So you were always audacious. (laughs) I think that sometimes I just didn't know better, Mm. which I think can be interpreted as being audacious. Mm -hmm. But I'm always a person who has ideas. Mm. So I think that that's a thing, too. If you don't have any ideas and I don't really know what you talk about to someone that you want to potentially like produce what you're doing. And that happens a lot as I, I do definitely meet people who just want to be recognized, which I get. People want to be loved. It's a huge motivator, but they don't really have any ideas. And I'm like, so what do you actually want to do, though? So I've always had that. Yeah, and that's interesting because you were just saying you were 22, 23 when you met Oscar Eustace. And before, we were talking about early career artists. And when, you know, in the 2004, 2005, when you first came to New York, you were an early career artist. And so now, in 2023, looking at early career artists coming through either the brick or through other spaces that you've been at, what has changed? What is like advice you would give? Has things changed? Oh my gosh. So (laughs) many things. I mean, I would say go to stuff, Mm. you know, experience stuff. I still do. And I will forever. I think that's part of the reason that I live here. It's definitely part of the reason that I live here because there are many parts of it that are not enjoyable, but getting to go to stuff, especially coming from a place where I primarily saw church plays for most of my life, but was still like, but I'm into performance. And it's like, and I think we talked about this before, but yeah, you know, I've seen Christ crucified so many times at the (laughs) church as a play. And it's like, and I've seen that play a million times. I want to see new stuff. Yeah. So if you're here, that's what you should do. And if you're elsewhere, that's what you should do too. So my first advice is go see stuff. Don't just think that you can silo yourself off and, be a genius in a room by yourself. And that's not what we're doing. That's not what creating performance is. And the second piece of advice I'd have is work for and learn from other people. Patricia Barra told me before I did the foreman thing, because she knew that I was opinionated and that I have ideas. I'm an idea guy. But she was like, just listen. Mm. He doesn't need anything from you creatively. And it's no offense to you, but you have a lot that you could learn from him. So don't try to tell him anything and just listen and learn and observe. And then you'll get so much stuff that will, she probably said something like, and you'll keep learning new things your whole life from that period. And it's so true. So I think listening and learning and working for other people and seeing how other people do it so that you don't just think that the way that you do it is the only way, because I think that can also create I mean, that's cult stuff, you know, right, yeah. like you should always be learning from other people. Title point is always working with new people, even though there are people I've worked with for over 20 years, because we don't want to get to a place where we're doing things that are problematic or boring. Worst case, problematic, 
best case boring just because we're so into our own buttholes, you know, being like, oh, it's so good up here. No, like get up in somebody else's butthole. Yes. I always say that. It's the belief in experimentation. Yeah. You'll never know unless you experiment, unless you try something new, invite people in. Yeah. And don't wait for a situation to be ideal either. I think that's Mm. part of that just made me be like, oh, yes, that. Because nothing will ever be ideal. And so if you're waiting for that, then you just won't ever make anything. And then that, I think, for me is a big factor in seeing whether I think somebody is a career experimenter and someone who will do it forever or someone who will do it when it's convenient. Mm. And convenience changes because of resources, money, health, collaborators, political environment, all of those things change. And so if you just need those to be perfect for you to create, I don't know what to tell you. Good luck. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Have fun. Have fun. Um, so I'm going to go back to the brick for a yeah. minute. So a lot of the work at the brick is very temporary with short duration. So we have the Interrobang New Works, which includes pieces between one minute to 20 minutes. We have the Gestating Baby, which contains work within 25 to 45 minutes. How do you think these time restrictions impact the art? Is there a philosophy here? There is, and there are a few, so brace yourself. One of them is I think there's a sort of, it's a very commercial idea that art has to be a certain length, a five-act play, a 70-minute or 90-minute thing. It's all based on capitalism and commercialism, which I think is a really boring motivation. It can be a motivation, but I would never put it in the top 10 for things motivating why I do anything. When you think about fiction writers, you have novellas, you have short stories. I mean, I love a Saunders short story. I didn't love Lincoln and Bardo. It was fine. But like a short story by George Saunders will break me into pieces, you know. So there are different reasons that things are different lengths. I also, from watching so much dance and comedy, learn that as well. You go to an open mic and you got three minutes. Mm. Three minutes can last a really long time. (laughs) Or it can be the tightest three minutes that you've ever seen. Mm. And then they have a 30-minute special, an hour-long special. Like, there are different durations for these things. Same with choreography. Same with a band doing a set. So I feel like theater could learn from all of those things and create things for different lengths. And I also think that it's a way to allow people to get over their anxiety. So things want to have different links for different reasons. And I think that if you're nervous about going from zero to 100, think about doing a piece of it. I think that that can be a real motivator. Just take one step forward on a project. Or maybe the project is one minute long. Mm. Identify what the project is and how best to take your next step. Otherwise, you'll never do anything. The number of ideas or projects that just never get done because it's too hard to get from one place to the next place because it's difficult to see the steps in between really makes me sad. Yeah, it leans into like the mission and the values of you and your work and brick and title point of like, Access, inviting. Yeah, and who gets to make stuff, right? Who gets to make the things. Because also if the only way to make something is to do this huge equity production with everyone is getting paid a living wage and everything is designed and da-da-da-da-da. But you can still be specific and have aesthetic value and have no money. Yeah. It's just creating a way for people to 
say, I could do this too. And then actually try it and see if it's something they want to do. Yeah. We're going to go into responses for the moment. <laughs> so there's a lot in the news right now, Teresa. Uh-huh. I've been reading it. Right. All the public just made a decision to no longer produce the Under the Radar Festival. There are many theatrical institutions laying off or furloughing a significant amount of their staff. So what is your response to this? It seems like you and all the organizations that you work for offer maybe an alternative perspective on these circumstances. Well... Mm-hmm. So I think that there are a few things at play. One, I really hope that somebody writes an article with a different perspective because it's really hard to get space in the periodicals these days and a lot of space is being given to these sort of multi-million dollar institutions that are having to lay people off and cut programming. But I also know that a lot of these places could have been making steps during the pandemic to make better choices. A lot of places got funding that would get them through the pandemic, and so they couldn't do certain things because of money, but that they didn't let people know that this was going to happen. They even hired more people and then laid them all off. And I, I'm not inside of any of those organizations, but being on a lot of Zooms with a lot of organizations and sort of seeing where money is going and to whom it's going and how much and what are the restrictions. I think that there was a lot of time where people should have been, instead of going to their summer homes and saying, well, I guess we can't do theater right now. So the institution I run has nothing to do. It's like, oh, there's a lot of stuff you could be doing, like reevaluating your entire system of operations. So I think that there's a lot of irresponsibility that went on with that. And a lot of sort of like irresponsible growth before the pandemic of like building giant lobbies and things that like, tell me that how much that cost. And I know it's not an equivalent thing, you know, like talking about my operating budget is not the same as talking about somebody else's capital campaign. But there is still this money, and you're like, where is this money going to? And is it going to people, or is it going to design? And who is the design helping? Is it helping make the spaces more accessible? Mm, If it is, great. But a lot of the time, it's just like it makes people, it's an expression of values of the institution. And I think there's so much conversation during the pandemic about values and the artist should be leading the way on those and I think that part of the reason that sometimes it appears that artists aren't leading the way on it is because these institutions are run by executive directors people who care more about money than people or art and if those are the values and it affects everything else going on so that's part of it Mm -hmm. but then I think that there are also when you're only looking at these things which our eyes being directed there by the things that we're reading then we're not seeing all of the other things. It's like me not going to Brooklyn to see shows in 2008 would be a similar thing. It's like I had to have that world be opened up to me. But there's so many other worlds of performance and spaces. Like when I started this, a little project called Staff Picks with Billy McEntee and Laya Comas, and I made just off the top of my head a list of venues for Laya to add to the website I think that just sitting there writing them down, I had like 75. And that wasn't even me thinking. It was just me being like, oh, these are places I've been this year. Wow. 
There are so many places doing exciting art. There are so many artists making exciting things. It is not dead. There are issues with where does money come from and who is it given to? Sure. Yeah, those are real issues and take continual addressing because that will always change, right? Foundations will dry up. Recessions will happen. The perspective of the foundation could change too. Who are they funding this year? Is it just visual artists? Okay, that's no... Just because it's funding visual art doesn't mean that theater has to stop for a year. So it's always changing. It's always evolving. But if you're only focusing on the things that are not happening, then I would challenge you to shift your focus, pull back a little bit, and see what is happening. It reminds me of what you said earlier about early career artists is go see it. Yeah, go see it. There is always something happening. Always. And that's part of starting staff picks because, you know, when I moved here, like the nonsense list still exists. Go to nonsensenyc.com and get on the nonsense list. But when I got here, you would buy time out every Tuesday. Mm. And it's like, that's fun to remember, but that's never going to be the case again. And that's when Helen Shaw and David Cody were writing for Time Out. It was a different time, but that's why I call named the Interrobang Festival Interrobang, which is a question mark, exclamation point in any order is an Interrobang, because in order to get a listing in Time Out, before the numbers came punctuation. So it'd be punctuation, numbers, and then alphabetical. But that's no longer relevant. So now all my collaborators are like, that's a really annoying name for a festival. <laughs> and I'm like, mm, sorry, it's been going on for seven years, so it's just going to stay. But yeah, we find out about things in different ways, but they're still going on. So you just have to find the path for you to find out about things. But it's New York. There's stuff going on all the time. And it might be in Bushwick, and that's beautiful. It might be in Bed-Stuy. It might be in Red Hook. It might be in Red Hook. It might be on Staten Island. <laughs> on Staten Island. It in might a, in be Queens. in a park, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh. On a, yeah. on a raft in the Gowanus River. <laughs> Seriously. And that's the stuff you never forget. I was talking to Nate Wieda, this incredible composer who composed in Corpo, but also the Dastardly Thorns versus the Town of Goldhaven. That's at the brick right now. And we are talking about memory and the things that after so many years you can retain and like how do you retain memories and there are some things that just slide off my brain as if it's a smooth little marble because the show had nothing that latched into me but then there are shows that I'll remember images or moments or how I felt for the rest of my life and that's really impactful. And most of those things, though, are shows like I was thinking the other day of The Third Man by The Million Underscores, Nicholas mm -hmm. Narania and Timothy Scott. They made this show that was for two audience members at a time that they did on the hour every hour as part of the Exponential Festival. And I got to see it on the night of the full blood moon and at 11 p.m. with Ryan Downey. And then and it was just incredible. It was just for us. And aspects of that show, just as the children say, live in my brain rent free, you know, it's there forever. And then the experience after of like going up stairs from Vital Joint and looking yeah. at the moon and sort of smoking cigarettes and howling at the moon, <laughs> you know, it's Talk great. about community building, right? Yeah. And this is like a perfect segue to one of my final questions. So everyone we speak 
to who knows you, loves you, respects you. They mention you as a conductor. And you are such a generous giver of resources. I mean, when I was researching the Exponential Festival, I saw that like the project's chosen's got many resources, such as a workshop on grant writing. Wild. So what did you discover from your own journey that made you such a natural community leader that values resource sharing? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think that there is, again, it's what are the barriers to participation? And I've had many of my own. Religion was a big barrier of participation. Money was a big barrier. Geography was a barrier. Size is a barrier. There's so many different things that create that. And so I'm interested in getting rid of those. And one of those things is sharing resources. Just because I have information doesn't mean it's mine. And if it's information that could help someone else, it's rude of me to hold on to it. And just because somebody else can now like have a door open for them doesn't mean that that door closes for me. And I'm excited at what might get to come of it. If somebody has this resource, instead of having to like go on a wild treasure hunt to find it because they didn't learn about it in college or they didn't go to college or they didn't have access to somebody like Jim Hamilton or Patricia Ibarra, then how do they get to learn these things? My dad was an accountant too. So I'm very lucky to not be totally in the dark about, finances. So yeah, there's a lot of ways in which I've been lucky. And so I want to share that with other people. And it's sort of, again, knowing where to look, right? Like it can be so intimidating coming here, even with the internet now, even though when I moved here, I had to pay for my internet at Rocket Raps. And it was just like, and I could barely afford it, but I needed it so I could research fiscal sponsors. But now you can look stuff up, but where do you go? And what do you trust? And if you don't have to spend so much time looking, then you can spend more time making and creating the world that we want to live in. But if you just have to spend so much time struggling, then it's harder to get to that world eventually. So I think that's probably the biggest part of it. Let's lean in together to help make living and creating and existing easier. And then ideally, we could all be happier more consistently. You know, a wild thought (laughs) is that I mean, I'll that's my like dream for the future is like, wouldn't that be nice? Mm. I think it's possible. It's beautiful. There's hope. Yeah. And it's nice to hear that when we're hearing like, as you mentioned earlier, like people saying theater is dying. It's not dying. It's not. It's not. It's so alive. There's so much hope. There's so much creativity. There's so many people making things that are truly interesting, telling new stories I also wonder to some extent if people are saying theater is dead because we're no longer telling white cis hetero stories. Yeah. Like, okay, (laughs) Uh, shut up. (laughs) Like probably the hardest no that I have for anything that happens at the brick is like, if it's a white cis hetero story, I'm just like, no, (laughs) I've seen it. I don't want to see it again. I don't need to see it again, but you can still make it. And I promise you there are spaces where you can tell that story But yeah, that's just, it's been done. I want to see new things and hear new things and have people actually make discoveries instead of replicating things that have meant something to them. Mm. And that's important too. Like, I love impersonation. Like, my company does a performance of the movie The Room where I get to be Johnny. It's great. And I love doing it. But I didn't create that. It's fun for me to do. But I wouldn't necessarily say that it's art. It's definitely entertainment. It is very entertaining. But yeah, what is the new creation? That's what 
I hope everyone is interested in. I'm going to lean in on that. What is the new creation? I love that. Thank you so much, Teresa. This has been nothing but a joy to have you here. I love it so much. I want to do this every Tuesday morning. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you all. Oh my God, Nikki, that was such a beautiful interview. Congratulations. Thank you. It's my first one. So I feel like, I feel like you from like all those, all those months ago when you interviewed Lynette. You got to be in the hot seat. It was so great. I also love that we both start these post interviews with each other with, oh my God. It's like, it's so typically us. It's very much on par with our personalities. Truly. So for the listeners out there, we did a pre-interview type of chat with Teresa before Mm -hmm. the actual recording. And something that I took away from that chat was this idea that theater is dead. And I remember (laughs) Teresa saying something to the effect of theater isn't dead. Mm -mm. We're just in a very challenging time right now. And we're trying to figure out how to move forward. Mm -hmm. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I agree 100%. I think... I'm with Teresa in that it can be very frustrating to be reading a lot of these articles or be in conversation with theater artists and administrators who are struggling Mm -hmm. and being able to hold space for them to say, I see you, I hear you, we're struggling, you're not alone, we are a community, but to not lose hope. Or, and I'm not a very religious person. I would say I'm a very spiritual person, but in, I would use this word faith mm. in that things are happening, you know, even if a festival closes mm-hmm. or a big company is laying off half their staff. And that's scary. Mm-hmm. That can be very scary. But there are still people here. There's still artists who have hearts and dreams and artistic craft and are smart about how to use the resources, even if they're limited, Mm -hmm. to do bold, audacious works. And we just got to almost open our eyes and like change our gaze and look at that. Mm -hmm. Look at maybe, you know, downtown isn't downtown anymore in Manhattan and there's something sad about that. Sure. And we have that moment of sadness, but then go to Brooklyn, go to Red Hook, <laughs> go yes. to, go, go look at the boats and see the experimental art that's happening there that these young artists are, you know, scrappy do-it-yourself artists, people like the brick, like Teresa, like all these spaces in Bushwick mm-hmm. and Williamsburg and in Queens and in the Bronx and in East New York, go support them because they're still doing the art. Mm-hmm. And I think I really responded to Teresa being like, yeah, you're allowed that moment of sadness. You're allowed that moment of like reaction to what's happening in the world, but then change the perspective. Yeah. What is the new creation? What is that's the new what creation? I wrote down. Yeah. Shift your gaze. Yeah. And I think that's what we need to hold on to. Mm-hmm. Beautifully said. What is going to haunt you about your interview with Teresa? I think the beautiful thing about Teresa is that they are, I mean, it makes sense that they are a theater artist because they're just such a naturally gifted storyteller. And the stories that they shared with me, I think will stick with me, will definitely haunt me. You know, theater is an experience. And passing on the baton to artists that are coming, right? They talk about with Bushwick Star, how they inherited the light grid and the chairs from (laughs) Richard Foreman. I mean, I absolutely love those things. It goes to show you that like 
the community of theater is alive and well and has a heartbeat. Yes. And they live in these stories and we have to hold on to that. Mm-hmm. So I think those stories that Teresa shared with us, I think that's going to haunt me and it's going to give me warmth and some nice memories mm-hmm. when when the going gets tough, you know? Mm, I love that. I love that. Well, congrats again. Thank you. On your first interview. Great job. And listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Visit art-newyork.org to learn more about our many programs and offerings, including our very own What's Off podcast. Until next time. At Art New York, we empower our community to define their own vision for success and always keep an eye out for what's next. Our responsive resources, just like this podcast, illuminate truly innovative solutions to the toughest challenges facing our field. You can support the next wave of theatrical innovation by visiting our website at art-newyork.org donate to make a donation today. Thank you. What's Off is a production of Art New York. Executive producer, David E. Shane. Associate producer, Erica Ray Barnes. Episode line producers Ashley J. Hicks and Nikki Maggio with audio engineering by Dante32.